Welcome to the What's What Weekly Wrap-Up, a podcast where we focus exclusively on the feature from WFUV's newsroom. I'm David Escobar. And I'm Shayna Walsh. Every Monday, the What's What podcast features the FUV Sports Spotlight. It's where we share stories from one-on-one, which is New York's longest-running call-in sports show. This week, Annabelle Watson and Mike Calamari talk to Yankees broadcaster John Sterling. John, this is probably a question you get a lot, but um, do you think about your home run calls for each player ahead of time, or is it kind of something you do off the cuff? Well, many of them have been off the top. The first one, Burn Baby Burn, was <laughs> off the top, and and um, an A-bomb from A-Rod, and Robbie Cano, and don't you know, all those came as I was broadcasting. Um, I did a home run call one for um, Austin Romine, who's an awfully good guy, and I never had anything for him. And he hit a home run in Detroit in an afternoon game. And as he was rounding between first and second, it hit me. And I said to to him, I said to the microphone, Romy, my homie. (laughs) And and, uh, later on, when we're flying to where we were flying to, uh, he came to my seat in the back of the plane, and he said, now, you know, they hear it from their wives and girlfriends and family, whatever. And um, he said, I love the call. So, you know, I thought that was great. But some of them you have to you have to work at a little bit. Definitely. Yeah, that, th- those calls are you know obviously amazing. You know, one, I remember the sun will come out, Tanaka. That's obviously <laughs> a favorite of mine as well. <laughs> I like that, too. Um, <laughs> I've forget- forgotten it. Yeah, that, that's that's one of our favorites out of uh, my friends and I. John, one more question before we get you out of here. Um, Susan Waldman, she is a, a hero of mine being a woman in broadcasting. So what is it like to be in the booth with a Hall of Fame broadcaster like her? Well, we've been friends uh, since the late 80s. And uh, so when I was finally able to get her as a broadcast partner, now, this is, I think, her 18th year, so uh, I have this phenomenal respect for Susan. She works as hard as you can work, and she nails it. She's a fabulous reporter, and, you know, we have a, we have a good uh, chemistry relationship on the air. So how do, what do I think of her? I love her madly. That was WFUV's Annabelle Watson and Mike Calamari talking to Yankees broadcaster John Sterling. Some home health care aides in New York City are working 24-hour shifts, but only being paid for 13 hours. In part one of the series that aired last Wednesday, WFUV's Megan Oftermat reported on workers rallying to repeal those around-the-clock shifts. Today, she's continuing that conversation. She's talking with organizers and elected officials about a bill that might help some home health care aides. Last Wednesday, you heard me talking to Gu Jifeng, a home health care worker who has been working 24-hour-long shifts for the past year. In case you missed it, here's the problem. Live-in home health care aides aren't paid for the hours designated for sleeping and eating during their 24-hour shifts. But most aides work through the night without sleep or breaks. Now, the workers are fighting to end these shifts, but it's complicated. They've been at it for almost a decade. But this year, they finally picked up some momentum in March when they were promised $30 million in back pay from their union, the 1199 SEIU, for unpaid wages. 
A lot of workers, when the arbitration agreement came out, they were very confused by the claims form that they were given. That's Zeke Luger. He's an organizer with the Flushing Worker Center. He says the union hired an arbitrator to settle a dispute with their members. Workers want to be paid for all 24 hours of their workday. The arbitrator ruled in favor of the healthcare attendants. That arbitration award, it seemed like a win, but it isn't that simple. They were looking at it and it said, you are agreeing to the settlement. You will get something in return for, you know, waiving your rights to sue your employer, to sue any owners associated with the employer, and to sue even the insurance company. While the decision demanded that the union pay back workers for their lost wages, forced arbitration also prevents union members from advocating for themselves in other ways. Their options for taking it to court as is are pretty limited just because the union negotiated for mandatory arbitration. Even after the decision came down, it still wasn't clear how much money workers would get back. And now, months later, many workers still haven't gotten a dime. We have not met anyone who has gotten a dollar amount. One person has been doing this for two decades and is owed like $2 million. And... It doesn't look like anyone will see those large dollar amounts. The workers and organizers like Zeke have had to do the math themselves to estimate how much they might get back. They started going to their union to ask, you know, like, how much money am I going to get? The union kept giving them reasons why they couldn't give an exact number. Workers are getting paid about three minutes on every 11 hours of unpaid work that they did. And a lot of these healthcare aides don't even understand the paperwork that the union is sending them. Information was only given to them in English, while most of this workforce, almost entirely, are immigrant women of color speaking Spanish, Creole, uh, Chinese. And so a lot of the information that was given to them, they didn't know what it pertained to. That's District 1 City Council member Christopher Marte. This issue is close to the council member. His mother was a home health care worker, and he's now the prime sponsor for a bill that would repeal these 24-hour shifts. We can't have people working for 24-hour shifts, period. So I think our bill, Intro 175, is crucial, right? We need to make sure that we have the law in place to abolish the 24-hour shifts in New York City. That's the only way we're going to have the city and the state make changes to their practices and to their systems, right? Here's what the bill would do. It would limit shifts to 12 hours, prevent two back-to-back 12-hour shifts, and limit the week to a 50-hour work week. But not everybody supports the bill. Multiple home health care agencies testified in a council hearing in September that they worry this bill could bankrupt them. But the council member isn't convinced. City council passes bills every month that changes funding streams or increases or decreases funding. And so we don't think that we're moving heaven and earth to do this. And so the financial argument, I think, is a fairly weak one. That's largely because these 24-hour shifts, they're only an issue in New York City. They don't really happen in Rochester, in Syracuse, uh, even in Westchester or Long Island. And these are the same patients that are under the same Medicaid plan. And that doesn't make sense to Councilmember Marte. And so we have to ask ourselves, why does it work for everyone outside of New York City, but it doesn't work for uh, individuals who are home attendants in New York City? 
His hope is that this bill can lead to a long-term solution. He's currently talking to the union, the other city council members, and the healthcare agencies, and making amendments to the legislation to get everybody on board. So I think a lot of people who, you know, opposed the bill earlier on are definitely changing uh, their, their tune and understanding of what we're trying to achieve. And it isn't just the healthcare workers who will benefit. Right? Imagine being a patient and your worker not being able to sleep for days on end. You wouldn't feel confident about the care that you're getting. We believe that the care of two people is better than the care of one person. Now it's Councilmember Marte's job to convince everyone on the fence that two shifts are, in fact, better than one. The bill is still being amended in committee, but it'll go to a vote soon. And when it does, 24 may finally be no more. That was WFUV's Megan Oftermat talking about home health care aides' fight towards getting their 24-hour shifts repealed. Leading up to the midterm elections on November 8th, WFUV News is hosting our election series, exploring how we experience politics and the voting process. WFUV's Maya Sargent kicks off the series. Today, she talks to organizations across the city who are combating voter misinformation. The country is gearing up for the midterm elections, taking place on November 8th. These elections mark the midpoint of President Biden's four-year term in office. They will decide the makeup of the Senate, the House of Representatives, and local appointments like judges and assembly members. Whilst these elections are essential, they usually have a much lower voter turnout than, say, a presidential election. And now, after the contested 2020 election, and the riot on the United States Capitol in January of 2021, there's another problem rearing its head. Voter misinformation. The threat of voter misinformation, think claims of dead people voting, people voting twice, and an alleged stolen election, has since become a threat to democracy. But there are people on the ground setting that record straight. The pieces of that is really kind of getting ahead of misinformation before uh, before it starts. So educating people truly on what the process look, look, looks like and where your ballot goes after you put it in the box and, and how it gets processed. You know, not necessarily debunking things, but um, pre-bunking them, if you will, um, which allows people to have confidence and security in our democracy. That's Erica Smitka, the deputy director for the League of Women's Voters in New York State. The League of Women's Voters is a nationwide foundation that is over a century old. She says, after recent events, it's all about getting the public to trust the system again. And that's the only way a democracy is going to work, right, is if people believe in the process and believe that they, uh, again, that, you know, letting their voice be heard uh, and that their voice is, is counted as a part of that. Erica says it's important for the public to know how polluting rumours of voter fraud can be to voter participation and democracy. Because truly instances of, of voter misconduct are just so isolated and exceedingly rare. As a foundation that began when women got the right to vote, Erica tells me sustaining a high voter turnout is hugely important to honour the history of the League. We have a lot of, of women who, you know, maybe their mothers or their grandmothers weren't able to vote. And so they really carry that with a, um, you know, it's a badge of pride to be able to vote and to be able to, to use that right. And it isn't just the League of Women's Voters who is working on this problem. The Brennan Centre for Justice is also trying to increase voter participation. 
Eliza Swearin-Becker, a representative from the Brennan Centre for Justice, told me she does this work all year long. That mission remains true every day of the year. Democracy work is, is not just something we do in a couple weeks in November or October. And this election education remains relevant, even in years when people don't have to make their way to the polls. Our work remains really valuable and urgent, um, whether it's an even-numbered year or an odd-numbered year. In light of the Capitol insurrection, Eliza told me a lot of their work now revolves around election protection. She says raising awareness about reliable voting practices is really important to engage the public. To ensure that voters can cast their ballots safely, free from intimidation, and can be sure that they're casting ballots that will count. And this education is now not only a luxury, but a necessity. I'm aware that in recent months, a number of polls have been released reflecting that American voters may have a higher level of distrust in election systems than they have had in years past. This distrust stems from the events after the 2020 election. But both Eliza and Erica insist. Participating in your local elections is crucial to seeing change. We are kind of always speaking to that and to the fact that your vote does matter. It does count, especially when it comes to local elections. And that's really where you're going to make the biggest difference and also where it's going to impact you the most, right? If you want to make a difference, put the system to the test and have a say in who represents you on a local, state and federal level. It's up to you to head to the polls on November 8th and cast your ballot. That was WFUV's Maya Sargent talking about the spread of voter misinformation around the country. For the past month, we've been running a series called The Littles, where we explore New York City's lesser-known neighborhoods and cultural hubs. This week, WFUV's Taylor Massetta went to Little Australia in Nolita to talk to Aussies who've made a home in New York City. Welcome to Little Australia, a vibrant community nestled in the heart of Nolita. Here, thousands of Australians live their day-to-day lives. Back in 2011, the Australian consulate estimated that 20,000 Australians made NYC their home, a number that's surely increased. Take a stroll through Nolita, which is located between Houston and Bowery. You'll come across a wide array of Australian-owned shops. There's Dinosaur Designs handcrafted resin jewelry and Aesop, a natural-based cosmetics store. They're all located mere streets from each other. James Boland is the founder and president of the Australian Community, which aims to connect Australians in America to economic and social opportunities. He's watched Little Australia steadily grow over the years. Many years ago, there was a famous restaurant called Eight Mile Creek, and then a few other Australian businesses started popping up around that, and it was reasonably cheap rents there, so a few Australians moved into that area. Boland says that the E3 Specialty Occupations Worker Visa allows solely Australians to stay in America for at least two years, giving Australians a reliable way to stay in the States. Unfortunately, the visas have grown scarcer, all starting back when the pandemic began. Countries went into lockdown, including Australia, and it became almost impossible to get an appointment to have a visa processed. And to an extent that exists today, it is still a challenge. But there are headwinds also for Australians down the road with the E3 visa being available now to Irish nationals. That's expected to go through in 2024, and we will see a lot of competition from Irish nationals for jobs that Australians have traditionally had access to here in New York. We could see the Australian population shrink considerably post-2024 as well. 
Despite these concerns, Little Australia continues to thrive. Around nearly every corner of Nolita, you're sure to find an Australian-owned cafe. Australian coffee is espresso style, individually crafted for each customer. It offers an opportunity to slow down while you wake up, and the taste of those flat whites take you straight down under. One of the most popular Australian cafes is Two Hands, found in four locations all across New York City. I stopped by one tucked away on Mott Street, right in the heart of Little Australia. It's a relaxed, homey spot with a cream-colored coastal aesthetic and baristas greeting you at the door with a smile. Lucy Thumbs is the chief operating officer at Two Hands. She first started working there as a server in 2017, and the cafe's homey feel drew her there in the first place. To be sort of like a little community spot, you know, it's going to be more Australian style where you get good coffee and then good food as well. So we really focus on sort of both. Like many other Australian cafes, Two Hands is very health focused offering a colorful, bright menu chock full of fruits and vegetables. For lunch, I ate their brassica salad, which is made with charred broccolini, a soft-boiled egg, chopped avocado, and a buzzed chili hummus with one heck of a kick. While the spice hit me a little hard, it really was a wonderful lunch. Thum says that Australian cafes put healthy, fresh foods at the forefront. I think that we really provide like refreshing, sort of like colorful food options, especially for brunch. Whereas in America, a lot of the brunch dishes are quite heavy, being like home fries and grits and things like that. So, to finish off my meal, I tried one of their specialty cold-pressed juices. Oh, I love the bottle! Yeah! <laughs> I'm so excited! It's the walking on sunshine, with pineapple, celery, apple, basil, and turmeric. It's a bright, refreshing beverage the exact vibe that Two Hands exudes. According to Thumbs, Australians are known for their laid-back, relaxed attitudes, so it really is a great place to take a breather. Like moving quickly, in a rush, stress. I think people really enjoy being able to come here, like sit down with a coffee, either with friends or by themselves, you know, and have brunch, take some time for themselves. I think that, like, the American community kind of enjoys that aspect. Boland sees a lot of similarities between Australian and American culture. He's not surprised that the two mesh together so well. Whenever I meet American, there's, you know, one of three things that they say. One is that they've always wanted to go to Australia, but it's too far away. Two, they know someone who went to Australia who had a great time. Or three, they went to Australia and didn't want to come back. One could say that Little Australia truly is a slice of what the Outback has to offer. That was WFUV's Taylor Massetta reporting from Manhattan's Little Australia. And that's it from us. But you can check out the What's What weekly wrap-up every Friday for more features exclusively from the WFUV newsroom. And make sure to check out the WFUV What's What daily podcast. It explores current events, culture news, and hot topic issues surrounding the New York metropolitan area. And it includes features and interviews just like the ones you heard exclusively from FUV. You can catch new episodes every weekday at 3, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, or find out more at WFUV news.org. I'm Shana Walsh. And I'm David Escobar.